Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From comets to asteroids to meteorites, early life in the solar system. Now there's a lot of small objects in our solar system, from meteorites that bombarded the moon billions of years ago, changing its surface that we can see today, through to comets that can be visited by space probes, and even comets you can see with the naked eye in the month of May and June. This we can find about small objects in our solar system. Now, a lot of the time, NASA gets all the glory when it comes to space missions, and occasionally you hear about space missions from the European Space Agency, the collaboration of multi-nations working together. But sometimes, a lot of space agencies, like JAXA, the Japanese Aerospace Agency, do a lot of great work building spectacular probes that time and time again manage to survive and overcome tremendous odds to do some pretty incredible things, like observe the sun or the inner solar system or touch down on asteroids. These things seem crazy. And often you forget that these other nations are punching well above their weight with tremendous scientific work. That's why we've made a lot of effort to talk about this kind of missions here on this podcast. Now, way back in February and then July of 2019, you may remember or heard on this podcast if you listen, you can go back in our archives and check it out if you wish. We talked about the mission Hayabusa 2. Now, this spacecraft briefly, if you recall, touched down on the surface of an asteroid called Ryugu. That's a pretty amazing feat in and of itself. Basically, the the probe, Hayabusa 2, flew out, caught up with an asteroid in its orbit and nearby to Earth, and just touched it ever so gently and gave us some readings. Now, it's taken a long time for scientists to get all that data back and to analyze all that information. But that's exactly what researchers from JAXA have done, working together with researchers from the University of Tokyo. And they've published this under journal Science. It's a pretty long list of authors diving over all of this data collected from that grazing of an asteroid nearly a year ago. Now, the interesting part about Ryugu is that it's a one kilometer wide asteroid. So in terms of space objects, not that big but it actually gives us a lot of detail on what an asteroid's made of and what other asteroids or bodies like it in the solar system are made of, how they're formed, and generally about the composition of stellar objects, not just in our system, but perhaps across the universe. Now, as you know, when the solar system was formed billions of years ago, roughly five, there was a whole bunch of gas and matter just left over from the formation of our sun. Now, these disks sort of coalesced over time. Some of that became the planets and other solid bodies, and some of the small chunks became asteroids. Now, planets changed a lot over that 5 billion years, undergoing collisions, collapses, geological and chemical changes, bombardments, you name it. But the thing about the asteroids are they're small, so the changes that they undergo are relatively small if it's managed to survive this long. A fair chunk of them get absorbed into other larger objects or get crashed into a planet. But those that have managed to make it till now are actually like looking at a time capsule of the earliest parts of our solar system's history. Now, this is important, as Associate Professor Tomokatsu Moratu from Tokyo University states. 
Knowledge of the evolutionary process of asteroids and planets are essential to understand the origins of Earth, perhaps life itself. And Astrodugo is an amazing opportunity to learn more about this, and it's relatively close to home. The interesting part about the Hayabusa mission is that it went to go visit the asteroid Ryugu, and it launched in 2014, and it got to Ryugu all the way in 2018, so four-year journey. Now, the interesting part about all of that is that it touched down on the surface, shot its rockets down, kicked up some dusty matter, and used its instruments to suck some up and analyze it. And more fascinating is that it actually ejected and shot some of that payload back towards Earth to be collected. And perhaps that payload will arrive roughly around December of this year, 2020. And that payload of return samples is what makes this mission extra special because you can actually bring back some of this matter of this asteroid to Earth to do even more detailed analysis you can't do on a small space probe. Now, whilst we're waiting for all that dirt and asteroid dust to make its way back to Earth from far, far away, there's still a lot you can learn by studying the chemical composition of that material. Now, what they found is lots of fine grains of dark red colored minerals and these were normally produced by solar heating which means that at some point in its life cycle Ryugu must have passed incredibly close to the sun to really bake that sand and deform that really dark red colored minerals and if you look at the distribution of those dark red minerals across Ryugu you can see that it's really around specific latitudes that would have corresponded to the areas of the asteroid oriented towards the sun. So you can see that well, if it kept that orientation and headed towards the sun, then obviously these areas would have got baked by immense amounts of heat from the sun. Now, previous studies have shown that Ryugu is also carbon rich and contains hydrated minerals, which is really important, and also organic molecules. Because if you have the sun heating up and cooling and heating and cooling these carbon and other organic molecules, you could actually see some pretty interesting changes in the chemistry of these materials that are on the surface of this asteroid. Now, when you think about an asteroid in science fiction, you have these pictures of these large tumbling objects all densely packed, but that's not true necessarily in the strictest sense. So I want to study this asteroid on its own and get a glimpse into how it may have been baked and cooled and moved around perhaps towards the sun and changed over its full life cycle actually sheds light on some of these lonely wanderers in our solar system because if an asteroid does actually manage to spin off and collide with something then it can introduce all these chemicals that have been heated by the sun and changed and undergone some kind of evolutionary process onto a planet and therefore this is important to understand how these asteroids the chemicals on them and their composition can sometimes get down to planets like our own earth now we'll get more details once the samples return to earth but there's still a lot to be learned here from what they've discovered on the asteroid Rugu. and the researchers of the university of tokyo are very busy trying to gather more data in preparation for december this year but it goes to show the importance of smaller space agencies still doing some great work to shed light on early parts of our solar system and the interesting but small objects inside our solar system like asteroids
Now, if you're paying attention and looking very carefully in late May and early June of 2020, you might be able to take a glimpse in the Southern Hemisphere just before sunrise of a new comet called SWAN. It can be seen with the unaided eye and it gives you a rare glimpse of a comet that you can actually see without a telescope. And for people in the Southern Hemisphere like myself, that's amazing. And this comet was first discovered by Marco Matiazzo using data from the SOHO instrument called the Solar Wind and Instruments, or SWAN. Now, the SOHO is NASA's Solar and Heliospheric Observatory. It's a satellite with a combination of instruments from NASA and ESA. You can use that to see all kinds of things. Now, one of the instruments that is used to study it is called this SWAN, the Solar Wind and Istropies. And using the data from this, which you can go look at yourself, so it makes a 360-degree sky map, you sort of look in the right-hand side around May 3, you can see it starting to appear. Now, SWAN actually maps out all the constantly outflowing solar wind, which bombarding from the sun into interplanetary space and looks at a particular wavelength of ultraviolet light emitted by hydrogen. Now, this comet that was discovered, officially called C-20F8 SWAN, but nicknamed Comet SWAN because it was discovered using the SWAN instrument, was spotted in the images that was dumped out from this huge amount of data. And it was found because it's releasing an absurd amount of water, about 1.3 tons of water per second. And since water is made of hydrogen and oxygen, it makes it visible to the instruments on SOHO, the Southern Hellastrophic Observatory. Now, Comet Swan is, is just a 3,932 comet to be discovered using data from SOHO. It's a pretty good comet hunter. And nearly almost of the, all of these nearly 4,000 discoveries have been made using coronagraphy instrument that sort of blocks out the sun's bright face and then looks to see if there's a faint outline like around it like a corona. Now this is the f only the 12th time though out of this nearly 4,000 that someone's actually used the SWAN instrument to actually discover a comet. Now Matiazzo has also discovered another eight using the same mechanism since SWAN was launched in 1995. So to call Matiazzo an amateur astronomer is also burying the lead a bit clearly a very talented one. Now, the comet SWAN will make its closest approach to Earth on May 13th, so in the past now, which is the distance of about 53 million miles. Now, its closest apogee to the Sun, however, the perihelion, is on the 27th of May, which is when it will be the brightest and the best to be able to observe. But basically, any time in this window of late May to early June, it should still be visible, be bright enough, in early mornings in the summer hemisphere if you want to check it out and it's, this is really interesting and a good use of data from instruments like nasa's soho satellite it shows what amateur astronomers can do to find stellar objects in this sea of data and help point out to you yourself to something to look at in the night sky Now, when you think about a meteorite impact 
It's normally the scene of some kind of disaster movie, a type of destructive event that caused the dinosaur extinction or wipes out cities and areas of countries, leaving massive impact craters. Maybe even the Gulf of Mexico comes to mind. Now, research published in the journal Nature Astronomy, led by researchers from Royal Ontario Museum, collaborating with researchers across the world, have been studying the surface of the moon for signs of an incredibly destructive collision. Now, the research was done using samples and research collected by NASA astronauts all the way back in 1972 on the Apollo 17 mission to the moon. Now, when researchers now today can look at this in pieces of rock from the moon, they found they contain lots of mineralogical evidence that they were formed at incredibly high temperatures, temperatures in excess of 2000 degrees Celsius. Now, on Earth, you would go, well, okay, well, maybe that could be formed inside the molten core, or a volcano or something like that. The problem is that, well, the moon doesn't have a molten core. Now, on, if you see this kind of rock on the outer layer on the surface, we know the moon doesn't have any volcanoes, so how did it get there? It could really only be achieved by the melting of the outer layer of a planet due to an incredibly large impact event. Now, in the rock, you can actually see the presence of cubic zirconia, a mineral phase that's you know, often used in jewellery as a kind of substitute for diamonds. So these are diamonds formed on the moon by a collision that heated it to the sand on the moon's surface to incredibly hot degrees. Now, of course, the mineral itself has cooled down a lot since then into a more stable form called bellylite. But you can still see the crystalline structure that it would have had when it was in a higher, higher temperature. And you can make a model of this and look at it inside a virtual microscope. Now, when they look at the structure of the crystal, you can also then work backwards and measure the age of the grain. Looking at how much it's decayed and changed, you can sort of make the analysis on when this crystal was initially formed into its shape. And which means that you can work out that the samples brought back from Apollo 17 of the moon's surface, where the moon's surface was superheated and formed into this diamond-like crystal happened around 4.3 billion years ago. Now, at this point in time, we know that this in the very early stage of our solar system, the moon was being bombarded by all kinds of things, forming new rocks on the early moon. That is important to understand. It's taken till 50 years ago to get samples from the moon here to Earth, but a lot of the times you can see this constant analysis and change. Now, the interesting thing is, on Earth, rocks turn over all the time. I don't mean literally, I mean the fact that the Earth's surface is constantly being reformed over 4 billion years. But on the Moon, that's not the case. Something that's ancient history, nearly as old as our solar system, is preserved there for us to piece together and look at. Now, that's really important for scientists because trying to understand the geology of the Moon is important. We can see the outer and the inner layers of the Moon, so how do they form? Did they mix? And why do we see such a complex range of rocks on the moon's surface? Because we see old rocks and new rocks all mixed together on top of the moon's surface. So what brought them into that place? We don't have a big tectonics or volcanisms that's recycling and reshaping like it does here on Earth. So if it's done by collision, that's certainly a possible explanation. Now all of this research was done, including by researchers like Dr. Anna Cernok, a postdoctoral fellow at the Royal Ontario Museum. And they're using just small samples, smaller than a millimeter. But that's enough for scientists to be able to piece together and solve the crash history of an impact on the moon 
from billions of years ago. Now, some great research published in the journal Nature Astronomy that helps using samples brought back from the Apollo missions to help solve even more ancient mysteries about the moon's surface and help tell us about early life in the solar system. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From meteorites reforming the surface of the moon to touching down on the surface of an asteroid and bringing the data back to Earth and a new comet in our solar system. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.